Whenever you've seen me, we've been going on a bit of a slower series every once in a while, talking about how we as Christians should approach the future. So we've talked about a couple different things. We've anticipated some of the new opportunities for the gospel that are starting to appear. We had a a study, we talked about the spiritual age, where there's more and more people being more aware of spiritual things. It's less and less now about, hey, we don't believe in anything spiritual. It's more and more about, we believe in everything spiritual, kind of like we read in the New Testament. So we talked about how that's an opportunity for the gospel. We looked at how God is equipping us to meet the future with hope as as his body, as the church corporately. We also talked about how we can approach the future, hopefully as individuals, even though we deal with fear and anxieties and all those things. Now, this week I want us to put all of these things together and we're gonna ask ourselves what, so because of all these things are true, now we're meeting this new, you know, every new generation has a new challenge that the Lord has put us here specifically. We're here because the Lord picked us out of all the generations he could pick and he said, these ones belong here. Right? which is a little intimidating sometimes, but it's also exciting. The Lord knew what we were going to face, and he said, yep, I want them there. So if that's true, what is our mission as the church today, whether the Lord returns this afternoon, right, praise the Lord, that would be excellent, or whether the Lord returns in 10,000 years, what, what are we supposed to be about and doing? We're surrounded by calls right now for the church to do things a certain way. Right? There's calls for the church to evolve our message, to evolve our, our methods, to suit our times, to pick certain things out of what we do, because those are, we like those things, but we don't like this so much. Right? Everybody has an opinion on how the church should do things. A lot of times it comes from outside the church. Should we listen to those things? Are those voices that we need to be paying attention to? Is it right for us to say, well, I don't know, they have something to say? Or, you know, in other words, is it time to modernize? Is this, are are our times so different that it's time to take a look at everything and say, you know what, we've really got to make some big changes around here. We can't keep doing things the way we always have. And you know, that call doesn't always come from outside the church. Sometimes it comes from within the church and it doesn't always come from where you think, right? When I said that, you probably have some people in your mind where you say, that's right, those people, they say that, they say we should change. It comes from everywhere. There's some people that have a very, you know, they're just very hard-nosed, practical people. We need to think about dollars and cents. We need to think about the bottom line as a church. There's some people that are very, you know, they're into this or other political thing, and we need to think about this or that because of this thing I'm excited about. The idea that we should change and adapt the message of the gospel is not new. It happens, it literally started happening in the early church, as soon as you start reading the issues they dealt with, they immediately started dealing with people saying, now hang on a second, Let, let's, let's, I don't like this bit, let's get rid of it. Should we modernize these things or change? Or is it time to cling stubbornly to the only truths that actually transcend all times and all people? Because those are really our options, right? Where there's lots of people that have, have opinions about what we should do and say, are we gonna listen or not? Now the answer to this, of course, is simple. You guys know the answer that, that I'm gonna say. The problem is that it's a painfully simple answer for our own prideful postmodern sensibilities. We, we come to the word with our own kind of lens because of how we grew up, the world that we live in, the way that we see things because of our culture. And we don't like super simple, very hard answers. We like, oh, well, I don't know, it's complicated. Maybe we should all sit around and talk about it and discuss it. And I've got some rational opinions. That's what we like. That makes us feel good and intelligent and important. The message, however, that's going to bring in God's kingdom can be memorized and understood by a child. It's not an incredibly complicated message. It's a deep message. It's a mysterious message. But you can go next door and you can listen to those kids learn everything you need to learn for life and godliness. 
So it's not actually that complicated. The key to all reality is so small. It's so easy to believe, right? We can put it in children's songs and in little children's Bibles and they can memorize it in a couple, in a couple phrases and that will be enough for them to actually know everything they need to know about the world, essentially, and about the Lord. And yet this is the stumbling block that many are never going to hurdle over. Something that simple, the Bible says it's offensive to many because of, of its truth. Today in 1 Corinthians 15, I want us to let God's word remind us of truths that we already know. You know, it's tempting sometimes, especially if you've been with the Lord for a while, that you either whether you're teaching or you're hearing a sermon, you're ready for like, what's the new thing that I'm going to hear today? What's the, I've never thought about it that way. That's a new spin on things. And that's fun. But sometimes the Lord just reminds you of things. In fact, a lot of the Christian life, I heard somebody say one time, much of what you hear in the Christian life is reminders, not new stuff. Once you, you know, the Bible is big, but it's not like 30,000 pages big. You, you can read it once and people will sometimes say, well, why do you keep reading it? Well, because I need to be reminded of all of it. It's not because there's new stuff in there. After a while, you start to learn it. But I have to be reminded because I forget. That's what we're going to do today. Your kitchen knife, right? You, I assume most of you have a kitchen. You probably have a knife, at least one in the kitchen, right? You've got one of those big ones that you use to cut most things. That's not like an unfamiliar tool to you, hopefully, unless like your best friend is the DoorDash guy. But it's, it's, a, it's a tool you use a lot. But when was the last time that you actually took it out and kind of sharpened it and got it ready to actually use, right? Maybe it's one of those kitchen knives that you can barely get through a tomato with it. Don't say anything, my wife is sitting in here. Um, I will sharpen the knives this afternoon. Uh, when was the last time you did that, right? Something that you use over and over, it can become so familiar to you that after a while, what happens? We know that when you sharpen a knife, what you're really doing is you're aligning the edge of that knife back to true so it can be useful because it's, you can't see it, but it's getting slowly bent out of true because it's being used so much. This is the same thing that we're going to do today. The central truths of our faith can become like that if we're not careful. We're so used to them. We say, yeah, yeah, I know that. Give me something new. When really what we should be doing is making sure that we're looking at these things and keeping them on our minds to keep ourselves aligned the way that we should be. Let's allow the Lord to hone us back into that alignment so we're ready to do the work of the gospel, which is sometimes to split people's hearts clean open. Isn't that what the Bible says? That's what the word does. It does that to us, right? It needs to be doing that to us constantly. It also needs to do that to people that it we're sharing with. The Great Commission that was given to all believers, it begins right where we began last week. We just finished talking about Easter. That is where the Great Commission begins. And so we're going to talk about that today. So we're in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start in verse 12. Just to catch us up very quickly, Paul has just finished an argument in this letter where he gives this huge long list of people who saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And Paul includes himself in this list. He says, I also saw Jesus. He appeared to me on the Damascus road and knocked me off my horse and, and told me I was persecuting him and all that, right? Now, why is Paul giving this whole list of people? Well, it's going to become apparent really quickly. The entire message of hope that we're going to share today hinges on, it relies on, the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's just like one of those kind of proofs, that, which I didn't like, that you have in school, right? It's like, well, if this is true, then you, now that we've proven that, this can be true, right? If you take away the resurrection of Jesus, the actual, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, none of the rest of the things we're going to talk about today matter at all. You have to have that. And that's why Paul spends so much time. And if you flip back and you look, it can be a little tedious. He's like, well, he appeared to this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. And he goes to the list. He spends that time, though, because of how important that point is. And he's going to spend a lot of his time in the letter on this. Let's start reading in verse 12. 
It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now this is one of those, and, and this is where we run into problems because we're very, man, we love logic so much, right? Or we think we do. We're the, we're the Reddit generation, we're the YouTube generation, right? So it's very much about like, well, that's not logically accurate, Paul. That's a tautology. But you just took, took two things and you put them together and you flipped them over and, and now it sounds really good, Paul, but that doesn't actually prove anything. We say in our own kind of rational minds. But Paul is demonstrating that Christ's resurrection and our hope of eternal life are ideas in tandem that can't be separated. You can't pick one out and say, I like this one, but I don't think this one should be there. They have to go together. If you lose one, you lose both of them. Now, we have to adjust ourselves to this. The arguments the Bible makes are spiritual arguments. They are not meant to make sense to people who demand that all the proofs for what they're going to believe are going to be materialistic and rational proofs. Now, this can run us into trouble because, you know, like you guys, I'm sure I grew up with a lot of like apologetics training in the church, which is very important. I don't want to, it came from a time where we didn't do those things and we kind of hid from those things and that was bad. So learning what we believe and how to defend it, that's very important. I'm never going to say anything against that. However, we have to be careful when we explain the Bible to people who don't believe in Jesus because you need to understand that you are never going to be able to box them into a corner with logic and facts and force them to believe something spiritual. That's not how it works. You accept the Bible or reject it because of the spiritual condition of your heart. As an act of will, you either submit yourself to Jesus and say, yes, I accept that on faith, or you don't. And you say, no, I won't. After that, you can have cool conversations about, hey, look, this makes sense because I've accepted it through faith. And now I can see, oh, that, that lines right up. I can explain these things. That's, you, you can't do that before. And we need to be careful not approaching it with like, well, I'll box them in with this argument and then they'll, then they'll have to accept the resurrection. There's plenty of evidence, but it's going to be accepted spiritually or not. That's how that ends up working out. How we approach Scripture and faith in Christ is very important. If we begin with arrogant assumptions, we should not expect to find very much in Scripture. That should not surprise us. right? You, you, you talk to your friend and he starts out saying, yeah, that's fine. Prove it to me based on what I can see and hear. All right, man, we don't really have much of a conversation to have, right? That's a, that's a pre-stance that you've made, and now you've actually shut yourself off from the entirety of what this book has to offer. So we really can't have a conversation. I, I shouldn't try and prove Jesus to him based on what he can see and hear, because that's a materialistic, rational assumption, and, and the Lord is not about that. The Lord loves... Jesus would get these questions from people, these prideful questions, and Jesus didn't come down to their level. He said, oh... Here's, here's a really hard saying that I have for you. Go think about that. That's how Jesus approached that. Not in an angry way, but in a way of he knew what they really needed. It was a spiritual condition of their heart. Now, we also can do this if we're not careful. We cannot hold on to materialistic thinking as Christians anywhere in our lives. It's not going to do to be filled with faith and trust that God exists, but then when it comes to things like the Holy Spirit or miracles or the resurrection, all of a sudden you're a very materialistic skeptic. That's not good enough. If you accept that God exists, but you're saying, yeah, but I don't like that weird, you know, Holy Spirit stuff. Well, th these things are together. You can't separate them. It's just like the Lord's resurrection, right? And your resurrection. You can't say, well, one of these is cool, but I don't like this one. That is not how it works. And Paul is going to spend this entire argument linking all of these things together, saying it's a whole package deal. You accept all of it or none of it. And this isn't, a lot of people will say this, 
you hear this sometimes. You say, well, yeah, Paul added all these things. That, that was, that, you know, the, the real gospel. It's from before. And Paul added a bunch of stuff that was new. That's unfortunately not true. Listen to Jesus. John eleven twenty three through 27. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Look at how many things are stacked up in that tiny little dense verse. He says, okay, I can make your brother live again. And she says, well, we believe in a resurrection at the, at the last day. I don't know about this, Jesus. And he says, no. Do you believe in me? She says, yeah, I believe you're the Christ. Then I can make your brother live again. Those things go together. Do you want your brother to live again? Yes. Then he has to live again through me. Th that's how it works, right? Jesus is really forcing her to come to this thing where he says, look, if you believe in me, this is how I'm going to raise him again. This is not something that Paul invented. The choice really is, you know, both or none. Some people, they really like Jesus, but they really don't like all the weird mystical stuff. Some people really like the, the weird mystical stuff that makes them feel good, but they're not going to accept Jesus's, you know, who he said he was in, in the resurrection. We can't do that. Our entire mission as the church, now and into the future until Jesus returns, flows from the resurrection power of God. You cannot hope to experience the love of God without accepting what God says about his world that he made. Right? You can't just have, well, I want the good feelings, but I don't really believe that the world is the spiritual place that God says it is. That's not how it works. Our skeptical assumptions, our need for kind of a dignified control of everything and to be able to understand and see it all, they have to die when we come to Jesus. Because Jesus says some very difficult to accept things to a modern 21st century mind about how the world works. He just finished telling Martha, look, I can make your brother live again. Her brother was dead. Like dead, dead, like he, he stinketh, Lord, in the KJV, which I love. He's, you know, he, th that was a hard to accept truth for her. And, it's, and she believed a lot of things that most people now would scoff at. And it was still hard. She's like, Lord, what do you mean you're going to make him live again? And Jesus was forcing her to say, this is, uh, what, here's what I'm telling you about what I'm doing in the world. Is that you need to accept things that may be a little bit challenging for you. In the words of the excellent theologian, Captain Barbosa from Pirates of the Caribbean, You'd best start believing in ghost stories because you're in one, right? We have this thing where it's like, yeah, those, are, those weird things, they're out there. I can take the parts of Jesus that I feel comfortable with and I can leave others. That's not true according to what Paul is saying here or according to what Jesus said. We have to kind of take the whole deal or not. Verse 14, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So remember, these two things go together. If you want to live, you have to accept that Jesus is alive. That's how, that's how it works. And these things rely on the eyewitness testimony of believers who saw Jesus after death. Because he says, look, we ran around telling a bunch of people we saw Jesus. If we're wrong, then why would you listen to us about anything else? Then we're nuts. Or we're liars. He's saying, you know, it's one of those. He said, so we, we, we told people Jesus is alive. If he's not alive, what we're teaching people is awful. It's evil. It's a false hope. Like we shouldn't, nobody should listen to us about anything. We can't get away 
from the authority of Scripture on this. Because Paul, even though Paul had seen Jesus you know, face-to-face when he appeared to him, even though Paul knew people that had touched Jesus' body after he, he raised, he, Paul is still saying, you, look, you're going to have to trust us. You're going to have to rely on our eyewitness authority. And the same thing is true for us. Our faith in Christ is the result of evidence. That evidence is the testimony of eyewitnesses as recorded and preserved through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, immediately, you, you do this little, I, I can see, you do this little, oh, <laughs> that's a cop-out, man. That's not the same thing as evidence. Look, okay, if, then we're having a different conversation. Now we're having a conversation about what kind of evidence you're going to accept as a rational, modern American person, right? But there's not no evidence. This is evidence. That's the kind of evidence God has offered, is spiritual evidence. He said, look, here's what I'll do. I will allow eyewitnesses to see me, then I'm going to, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, allow them to author, and then I'm going to preserve a book down to these times that you can read about it. Now, you're free to say, well, that's not the kind of evidence I want. That's fine. First of all, what kind of evidence do you expect? Like, it's a little hard to get HD video from back then. And secondly, well, then that's, that's up to you. Now it's a re- revelation of the hardness of our hearts, but there's not no evidence. That's not true. Because this, this is what we keep getting pointed back to, is the authority of Scripture. What we are preaching and teaching and placing our faith in is Jesus Christ crucified and raised to life. God incarnate, willingly pinned to a tree and bleeding out your salvation. That's what we're preaching. Immortality for you, if you want to accept it, is what we're offering. Right? Which sounds great. That's amazing. Yeah, but it's only true if what we're talking about is true. It's just a nice idea otherwise. And nice ideas haven't raised a lot of people from the dead, last time I checked. John 20, 29 through 31 This is Jesus again speaking. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now this is a post-resurrection encounter, right, where the disciples are encountering Jesus. And there's lots of cool stories in the Bible. We were talking about them last week, where Jesus sometimes just hangs out with his disciples and messes with them a little bit, which is kind of funny. Um, But in this case, he's talking to his disciples and he says, Look, you guys saw me. There's going to be people who are going to believe just because they read about what you saw. That's us, right? And Jesus says there's a blessing for that, for being willing to accept on faith what we have recorded. Now, verse 30 says, Now Jesus did, in John 20, says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The preaching of the gospel, did you catch that, is accompanied by signs so that the supernatural nature of our claim is confirmed. Now, this is where we run into trouble. Some of us, we don't, I don't like signs. Signs are weird. I saw somebody do a sign thing once, and it, it turned out to be fake, so I don't like signs at all. Okay, but this is the way that God says he accompanies his message, is by supernatural signs to demonstrate the supernatural authority of the message. So we have to accept that, or we can have none of it. We don't get to pick and choose. Oh, I like Jesus, but I don't like the miracles. First of all, you're missing out on like the coolest part. Like, I don't understand why you would want that. But second of all, Jesus wasn't willing to make that bargain. He said, no, this is how I'm going to do it. God's, God the Father sending his Son and his Holy Spirit and recording in his word, these things all go together. We don't get to pick one of those parts that we're comfortable with, right? Well, I like the Bible. It's a nice book to read. But I don't, I don't like any of the other stuff. Well, why would the Bible be a good book if none of it's true? What do you read? Like, there's lots of cool books, man. I've got a lot of books, <laughs> and I don't have very much time. Why would I read this if it's all made up to make me feel nice? I, I really have never, it's not a rhetorical question, I've never understood that. 
That doesn't make sense. Either it's true or it isn't. And this is kind of the, that point that if you hear me kind of repeating myself, Paul is repeating himself, right? He keeps hammering on and on after the same thing, saying, well, it either is or isn't true, guys, and, and it all stands or falls together. Verse 17, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, this is Paul speaking to people who are tempted to say, you know what, you're right. All this supernatural stuff is really difficult and it gets us caught up in all these places I'd rather not go. So let's just, can we get rid of all that? And can we just have the parts that are useful to us today? You sure have heard this and this comes from everywhere and has always been that way. Let's get rid of that. Let's hold on to the real core of, let's get back to what Christianity really is, people will say. Now, Paul has some disappointing words for this strategy, right? This is not going to work. Why? Christianity is a religion of the supernatural. You can't remove the miraculous and the mysterious from Christianity like you're just kind of cutting out somebody's appendix. Ah, we don't really need that. We'll just get rid of this and you'll be fine. That's not how it works. That's the jugular vein. You rip that out, there's nothing left. There's nothing useful to Christianity outside of the claim that God loved you so much that he came down, died, and stopped being dead so you could also not be dead. That's the thing, dude. If you don't want that, we don't have anything else to offer. And yet, we're overrun with internet philosophers and, and political acolytes who hope that Jesus is going to slot in nicely right next to Marcus Aurelius or Karl Marx or pick your guy, right? I love Jesus because he agrees with all these things that I like. Jesus doesn't agree with anybody like that. You might agree with Jesus. That's how we approach. We, we approach Jesus and either agree or disagree with him. He is the centrality. He is God. He's bringing down what God has to say to us, and we either accept that or deny that, but Jesus is the referent, and we're over here. Right? We're going we're gonna to line ourselves up and reference that and say, how do, how do I measure up? It doesn't go the other way. Well, I like these parts of Jesus because they slot in neatly with what I like. That, that long term is a doomed strategy. We are already seeing many begin to return, I'll say to Christ. Many are beginning to return to the Bible. Many are beginning to return to Christian culture. But they're not all returning for the right reasons. And this is a very common thing. Unfortunately, no amount of moral values or societal strength or good ancestral traditions or cool things I can use to beat up my political enemies or, or justice inequality or whatever you're hoping to get from this, none of that is going to save your soul from your sins, Paul says. None of that is going to make you not dead. It might be cool. It might fix it. Like, there's nothing the matter with some of those things, but they're not supernatural to, to save your soul. And that's what we have to offer. If you're going to die anyway, what of all that could possibly be meaningful to you? Why do you care? If it doesn't fix the problem of humanity, which is at some point, I'm going to stop working. That's the problem. That's what well, keeps us all up at night. That's what everybody's running from is I, I'm not going to last forever. I might not even last to see all this cool project that you're telling me I have to work on of, I don't know, making the world safe for people or whatever you want to do. If you can't fix my problem, what, who cares? And if I could possibly live forever, what could be more meaningful than that? What else matters? If that's true, if, if it's true that somebody could save me from my sins and make me live, 
who cares about all that other stuff, right? That's nice if I can have it along with, but if I can't, then I just want this. I just want to live forever. These are the stakes. The entirety of Christianity rests on these things, on the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing of value to be salvaged if this is just a wonderful symbolic narrative or a psychologically important story that humans have used to explain the world or the bedrock of Western civilization. Paul says, compared to the resurrection, all of that is useless. You're of all people most to be pitied if all you have left to hold is, well, this is an important story that makes me feel good. How pitiful. Like, like, and I'm not saying that in an attacking way. I'm saying that's pitiable. That you're just, you're holding on to Christianity thinking, well, it's not real, but it makes me feel good. How awful. So a lie is all you've got left? Why not, and I say this kindly, why not let it go then? If you're just going to be here thinking, well, it's, none of it's real, but it makes me feel good or it makes my mom feel good if I'm here, don't do that. It's, either it's real and it matters or it doesn't. There's really no middle ground there. Jesus didn't leave us one. And once we begin whittling away portions of our faith that we're uncomfortable with or that people who don't know and love Jesus reject, we don't end up stopping. Have you noticed that? Once you start saying, well, my friends don't really like this part of Scripture, so I'm just not going to talk about that. And then this guy over here, he said that this was silly and I can't, we can't think that anymore, so I, just, I won't think that. I'll just think the rest of it. That process does not stop. Once you begin accepting the opinion of people who don't know God about what God says, you begin slowly losing what this is because this is a supernatural claim. It has nothing to do with what natural people, like their opinions really don't affect this, right? Which is hard for us because we lose respectability then. We don't get to say, I'm a Christian, but I'm like one of the cool ones. You know, I don't think all the weird stuff. I'm, I'm an awesome Christian. We, we can't say that because pretty soon they find out, wait, you think all of it? You believe all this crazy stuff? I thought you just like, I thought it was just, you know, you went because it looked cool and, and, you know, you're a nice person. And, but I didn't know you believed all that. Well, we lose that opportunity when we accept that this is supernaturally true. We now can't bargain with the world over how much of this we're willing to believe. We just say, well, don't know what to tell you, man. God saved me, so I pretty much just listen to what he says. That's the bargain that we're making. I must have all of it to live forever or nothing. The Holy Spirit, miracles, angels, demons, prophecy, the supernatural realm, it's all coming back, guys. We could keep it out for a little while. We could say, no, 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 that this, that's not how the world is. And we could, we could keep ourselves in a little tiny box that made it feel to us like none of that was real. But God loves us too much. It's all coming back. And once you accept, if you accept, man, if you can believe that God exists, all the rest of that is pretty easy. If God exists, yeah, it seems like he could write a book and keep it in, in good shape so that I could read it and understand what he says. That doesn't seem hard. If God exists, it seems like he could make a world. Seems pretty, yeah, that makes sense, right? If God exists, it seems like he could pretty much raise anybody from the dead that he wanted to. And he would have some opinions about who gets to live forever. That makes sense too, right? All that makes sense once you accept God. I don't understand the idea that, may, well, I, I like the idea that God, you know, is alive, but I don't really like the idea that he has anything to say about what I do. What kind of God is that? <laughs> what do you mean? Like, what did, what did he do then? He, he doesn't even have an opinion about the way I live. He's not really God. If we hope to live beyond death, the supernatural world is something we're going to have to reckon with. And we've tried Christianity without the supernatural, haven't we? Like, that's an experiment that we have run. 
But what if we'll do church, we'll do all those things, but we'll get rid of all the stuff that's weird and makes people feel uncomfortable. The blood stuff, that's just strange. We don't do that, right? We've tried that. The world has rightly judged the result to be pathetic. And they've completely abandoned those. And I'm not speaking against anyone. I'm, I, I really hope before the Lord that I'm just saying what we know to be true. Those churches are dead. They're dying because the world says, why would I waste my time on that? You've got nothing to say to me, nothing to claim of me. You, you say nothing about the world other than that we should all just be nice. Man, why would I get up early on Sunday for that? So the world knows that of all people, those people are most to be pitied. Either this really makes a difference or it doesn't, and the middle ground, unfortunately, is hard to occupy. The church in the future is going to succeed by the supernatural power that raised God's Son, just as we have in the past. We've never succeeded by figuring out a good strategy to kind of, well, we're, we're going to appeal to the world in this generation this way. We've pretty much always succeeded by how close we are to Jesus and how filled with the Holy Spirit we are. That's how we work. And when, we're, when those things aren't happening, man, the church is not a pretty sight. <laughs> we're not special because of us, you know, and we've talked about that. So going to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Adam all shall be made alive. That is the world's best, it turns out, story, right? He's setting up, and in the, in the language you see, Paul's setting up like this hypothetical, where he's like, well, if Jesus wasn't raised, then what happens? And he's explaining to people they were worried because people were telling them, well, no, 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 Jesus didn't really die. These heresies came up very quickly. Jesus didn't really die because he wasn't really there. He was a spirit, so he couldn't really be crucified. He just looked like he died, and then he looked like he was resurrected, Yay, it's, it's some sort of cool symbol. People were already saying it very early in the church. And people were saying, well, so is, is my dad not really going to be not dead? Because <laughs> if Jesus didn't really resurrect, then why are you telling me that my, why would I be able to live forever? Where, why, you know, oh, you'll go to heaven though. Why? <laughs> if I die and Jesus can't resurrect himself, then how am I going to make it? And this is a very important question. And Paul started saying, yeah, that's true. If, Jesus, if there's no resurrection of Jesus, then we're in trouble. And here's the, here's, in that world, here's the list of all the things that we have to deal with that are horrible. But he says, but in fact, right? Now back to the real world. This is what happened. So this is all of the awesome things that are true because of that. It's like he's kind of snapping us back from this horrible hypothetical world and, and saying, now, now welcome back to reality. This is what actually happened. Through the ultimate miracle it's possible for any person to accept the gift of Jesus Christ as their sin's total annihilation. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. I love it talks about us as, as the children too. It's just a reminder. It's like, look, that's who you are. You're the kids, right? So God has done this work. You as the children, you share in the flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Nobody else can laugh at death the way we can. Even though we have tears in our eyes. You've ever been to a funeral where it's believers at the funeral and the person who dies with Jesus, it's a different funeral. It's not, not sad. You know, don't get me wrong, right? But it is a different feeling to a, and I know pastors who they have to preach sometimes a funeral where some, everybody knows that person didn't die with Jesus. 
And sometimes they have believing people that are living on, and it is a different feeling. It's a horrible feeling when you're in that room because there's no hope there. You, you know, well, that is the last time I will ever see that person. But you, we've all lost people that you know, oh, I'll see you again. It's tragic and terrible for us to be here, not seeing that person, but you have hope. We don't die, and in, in the, all the New Testament says, we don't die like other people die. That was one of the first things they started saying about Christians in the Roman Empire. Is they said, we do not get these people. We don't understand the weird thing they believe, but man, they die pretty good. And the Romans, like, they were about that. The Romans were all into the Stoic thing. So they were like, man, that's, they know how to go out. Because Christians didn't die the same way. We had a hope past that. Romans were like, well, I guess I'm dead now. I guess I'm just going to kind of turn into dust. And so I want to keep a stiff upper lip and do a good job. And Christians said, all right, do whatever you want, man. Polycarp. We've talked about Polycarp in here before where he says, I've been with Jesus for all these years. You think I'm going to turn on him now? Do your thing, man. Like Polycarp was, he was pretty cool. They kept trying to give him these outs. And Polycarp was like, no, kill me. I want to go see Jesus. Like he was demanding that they would actually give him the opportunity to prove that he loved Jesus that much. That's the attitude that we have because we know that we're not actually going to stay dead, which is pretty cool. Because, but that only comes, you saw it in Hebrews 2, that only comes because of what Jesus has done through the resurrection. If that's not real, then our resurrection is not going to be real. And a metaphorical resurrection doesn't make me feel any better. Well, metaphorically, my, my, my you know, ancestors who died in Christ, they're alive metaphorically. I want to see them for real. <laughs> I, metaphorically, you won't die. That still means I have to die for real. I don't want to be metaphorically alive. God didn't make me to be, you know, and God didn't make me to want that, you know. That's not a bad thing. We have this thing, no, as a Christian, you need to be like, no, you're supposed to want to live forever. That's how God made you. You're supposed to want to be in God's presence forever. That's how God made you. You're not supposed to be, accept that. Death is supposed to be an enemy, and we're going to read it's an enemy that Jesus is going to conquer for us. So it's good to say, no, I don't want that. I don't want like a nice feeling. I want the real thing. I want to actually be with the Lord. Do we truly believe that Jesus is able to give us his inheritance, which includes victory over death? And that's what we're talking about. We see in the New Testament that this is something that's talked about is because Jesus has obeyed his father, because he has died, because he has proven through his resurrection that he has power over death, he now has this inheritance that he gives to us. He says, I earned this. You can have it. That's what we're betting on, right? Is literally that resurrection. Now, and here's where we begin to think about other people and thinking outward. If I believe that, if I think that's true for me, who do I know that doesn't need that? Pretty much everybody I know needs that, right? Everybody I'm aware of, everybody I'll ever interact with also does not want to die. In fact, most of them, because they don't know what I know, they're thinking about it a lot more than I am <laughs> because they don't have a solution, right? So they all need to know this. If I have the water of life without price, which the Bible says I do, who do I hate so much that I don't want them to drink from it? I have the solution to what ails you. What, you don't know me. I know, but I still have the solution, right? I have no idea what's going on in your life, but I know what you need. And so therefore, we're now sent out. Exactly like Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, that's what we're sent out to carry. That is the message that we're being given. Not any other message. We can't offer people some sort of counterfeit that we think will make them feel better if they're still going to die. And therefore, now we're going to kind of transition to the Great Commission. Verse 23, he says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, 
Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> he gives this list of, he says, look, this is the plan of action that Jesus has now. First of all, Jesus has been raised. He's called, Jesus is called in the New Testament the first fruits from the dead. Right? Just like he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, some people get that wrong. They say, oh, the firstborn. So Jesus, God created Jesus. No. Firstborn meaning preeminent. He is the ultimate of, of anything. Okay, he's also the first fruits from the dead, meaning he's the first one who went and came back. But he's only the first fruits. Because he says, now I'm going to do that with the rest of you. If you trust me, I'm going to send you on the same journey that I went. I went, and I'm back, and I'm going to send you, and you're going to come back. And then it says, comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God after destroying everything, including death. The resurrection gives us the supernatural foundation for the Great Commission. Why would we go tell a bunch of people about that if it's just a metaphor or if it's just a nice thing to think? Well, who cares? They think nice things too. Quit, quit bothering them at the grocery store. Like if it's, just a, if it's just a set of ideas that we have out there with all the other ideas, then, I mean, seriously, stop bothering people. But if it actually solves the problem, well then... Look, you, you don't have time. I know you're pumping gas, but we've got to talk, right? Like, that's, that's a totally different thing. We're called to advance the kingdom of God, which began with Jesus' ministry and will be consummated in his triumphant rule over the whole earth. Jesus has taken a break from that and said, now it's on you. I'm leaving this with you. You continue to take this forward. Now, that's super intimidating because I know me, right? So, that can seem really challenging. Well, what do you mean I'm supposed to do that ministry? Have you read the Gospels? Did you see what Jesus did? I can't do all that. Exactly. Which is why I'm glad that we have a supernatural hope, not just a natural hope. We're going to talk about that in a minute. What did Jesus do? Jesus breached the vault of Sheol and set free all of those who had awaited his coming in hope. We talk about this on Saturday in between. I know Pastor Tyler's talked about this before. It's called the harrowing of hell is the doctrine, which is that Jesus, during that time where he was in the grave, went down to Sheol and set free all of the people who had been looking forward to the Messiah. The people who were waiting and saying, okay, I, I don't know a whole lot yet, but I know there's a God and I know he's going to fix this. I read a thing the, the, on Saturday where somebody said, man, I would have loved to have been there just to see the apostle, or, uh, John the Baptist with his head under his shoulder saying, that's the guy, boys. <laughs> Look, he made it. I told you, right? Which is funny. I don't, maybe his head was on his shoulders. I don't know. I, I enjoyed the picture. So the, the people were waiting for him. And he says, Look, I did it. He says he led out a host of captives. He said, you can't keep them here. I'm going to take them out. And then he turned to us and he said, now you go do it. Well, that's super intimidating. I can't do that, Jesus. What do you mean? Like, I'm, I'm, what do you mean I'm supposed to do all that? No, we're not worthy of that. We're not able. Scripture's very clear. We are earthen vessels. We're not able to do that. Good thing, <laughs> because Jesus is going to help us. Good thing he's going to send a comforter, because he's not going to back down on, what he's, on the mission he's sending us to. He's said, look, I am, this is the reward of my suffering." is how it's described in scripture. He says, I earned this. I want the people that I died to save. They're mine, Jesus says. You can't let the enemy have them. You have to go do this. It's a very serious kind of commitment Jesus is asking us to make. He says, look, this is my victory. I'm going to have it. And because I know you can't do it, I have to send my spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, 
to enable you to do it. Because it's going to happen, right? He says, look, it's already prophesied. We're reading Revelation. We're going to get to the end, and, and Jesus wins. He actually sets up the kingdom. He actually takes, you know, takes a host of captives. He actually gets rid of death. That all happens. So he's going to do it through us, through the Spirit. Mark 16, 14 through 20. This says, Afterwards he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them, and they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, the Lord Jesus, after he'd spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So, what's happening in this passage is, this is, again, after Jesus' resurrection, and he keeps showing up to his disciples, and cool things happen, like he walks through walls and stuff, and, you know, showing them, look, I'm, I am now resurrected, I am demonstrating more of my power as God than I did before, but he would also do things like eat with them all the time, because he's like, look, I'm actually here, though, for real. So it's, it's both and, which is amazing. He's saying, look, I'm not a ghost. I am here, but also I'm, I'm able now to demonstrate that God did the thing I said he was going to do, which is raise me from the dead. So he would show up to his disciples and he starts talking to them and he says, look, this is now what I want you to do. I want you to go out. And here is the way you're going to go out. I'm going to accompany my message with signs and wonders. Now, this probably seemed a little crazy to them. They had already done a couple things, right? Remember Jesus would send them out and he said, look, you're going to go and you're going to cast out demons. And they came back and were like, that really happened. And Jesus is like, yes, I told you it was going to happen. No, but like for real, like I cast a demon out. And Jesus said, I, I told you it was going to happen, right? But they were experiencing that. The Lord was working through them. But this is going to be different. He says, he's, he, there's a place where he says, you're going to do more things than I did. And everybody always tries to apologize for Jesus. They're always like, well, he didn't mean more things or bigger things. He just meant that like more people will hear the gospel through you than they did through Jesus. Man, that's a lame way to state it then, Jesus. Because Jesus said this super cool, exciting thing, and we have to now apologize for Jesus. That doesn't seem right. It seems like he said, we are going to do more and greater things than the ministry that he had. If you just read it, that's what it looks like it says, right? That's so what it looks like it says here is he said, all these things are going to accompany the, the, the preaching of the message. Now, don't get me wrong. Just doing what we're doing today, there's nothing lesser than or, or not important about this. This is the preaching of God's word. And hopefully, Lord willing, we're not doing it in a natural way. I, I pray every time before I do this that this isn't just me talking and you listening, that the Holy Spirit is working, right? So there's nothing natural about this, Lord willing. But also, if we're going to settle for trying to do the mission Jesus has sent us on, which is impossible for us to do in our own strength, without the supernatural authority and the accompaniment of signs that he's said is going to go along with it, it seems like we're handicapping ourselves. Jesus said, look, I've given you this task. You cannot do it. I want you to do it in this way, and I'm going to give you this help. And we said, okay, great, Lord. What if we tried it on hard mode? Why? <laughs> Jesus said to go out in this way. He said, I'm going to give you these things. And we say, oh, I don't know, Jesus, that seems really complicated, and some of it's a little weird. I'd prefer to do it I'd prefer to redefine what success would look like so I can hit the target, Jesus. I'm going I'm to define, and, and we'll do this sometimes. Well, you know, prophecy means teaching the word. Nope, we have a gift for that. T 
Teaching is teaching the word. Prophecy is a different thing. Right? Don't, don't redefine what, what Jesus promised you so that you can feel better about not having it. Ask Jesus, look, I need this thing. You promised it to me. I, I really do need it, and I don't have it. Admit to Jesus. We are, we are lacking something that we need to receive from you. If you wonder sometimes around here why we insist on the charismatic gifts of God's Spirit, this is why. We, we insist on these things because we're not going to presume to accomplish God's mission without God's power. Look, I know me. I can't do any of this without the Holy Spirit. And I know because I've tried. I have experience working without the Holy Spirit and working with. I can tell you in detail the difference, right? So it's not about, oh, we just like weird stuff. Look, I've temperamentally, personality-wise, not really into things that make me feel awkward. And if you're going to allow the Holy Spirit to operate, I will guarantee you at some point you will feel awkward. Because the Holy Spirit, I think, sometimes loves to push you a little bit past your comfort zone and say, what if we did this? And you say, oh, I don't know. And he says, come on, it's going to be good. We're going to do it. Right? You, you are not going to get to stay in your comfort zone if you want to accept what the Lord is going to do. That's just not going to work. So we do this, though, because I've, I've tried staying in my comfort zone. And you know what else doesn't get done over there? Any of the work that God is calling me to do. And, and I feel that. I see that. I say, Lord, we're not, it's not happening. People aren't getting saved. People's lives aren't getting changed. We're just kind of sitting here and getting grumpier, and we're getting more facts in here. But not, you promised that a lot of things were going to happen, and I'm not seeing that. Jesus says, yes, I promised it was going to happen a certain way. Are you ready to try that way? What if you came and you admitted that you didn't have the thing that I have for you, the supernatural resurrection power of, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and I gave you that, and then we try again, Right? Sometimes my kids, you know, they hear half the instructions and they run off and they get started and they come back and they say it didn't work. And I said, that's right, because you ran out of the room before I had finished, you know, explaining how it was going to go. We do that with the Lord sometimes. And what else are we going to evangelize after all? You know, we're going we're to go to all the trouble. We're going to go into all the world. We're going to preach. We're going to do all these things. But we're going to say, well, you know, what I've got to offer you is Jesus loves you and he wants you to be happy. Not bad. A good start, but not the thing. <laughs> not the whole thing. And if I'm going to go to all the trouble, and I'm going to look really weird, and I'm going to intimidate a lot of strangers, I would like it to be the right message, right? Well, okay, go into all the world and tell people that get rich and make society nice. Ah, eh, I mean, nice, I like that, right? I would love to have those things, but I, it's not worth dying for. And I don't know if you've read this, they could kill me when I evangelize, it turns out. So I don't want to die for that. Right? Like, I don't want to die. There's lots of people talking about getting rich and making society nice. Let them do it. Oh, you know, go into all the world and tell them to not do bad things. Yeah, I think we get that. Like, I think we know that. Most people don't argue with that, usually. So, you, you know, why do I need the Holy Spirit's power to do that? I love the thing from Pilgrim's Progress where he just, he gets so upset that he's been living the way he shouldn't live. He just starts sprinting away, you know, from, from the place where he lives. He covers his ears because everybody's telling him not to go, and he's just screaming eternal life at the top of his lungs. That, number one, is worth going and, and looking really weird in front of strangers for. Number two, that's a message that might actually change somebody's life, if they're willing. And number three, I think that's a message that when God sees us preaching, he's willing to step in and say, now this is something that I want to empower with my Holy Spirit. I'm excited about that. I'm not excited about, you know, Jesus wants my political party to win. You should not expect the Holy Spirit to show up for that. He's not into it, right? It doesn't matter which political party. He's, he's, he's not excited about that message. He's not excited about, well, you know, Jesus wants to make you rich. He might. Sure, that'd be great. 
but he's not going to show up with signs and wonders for that. He is excited about Jesus Christ has raised to life and you also can be with him. He will show up in a very unique way for that. I can tell you some cool stories. What would our life be like if we staked everything on Jesus? No hedges, right? no alternate plans. I've got Jesus and then also if that does not work out, I have this other thing that I'm going to kind of keep going on the side. What if we really put it all Right? Just like in, you know, in a casino, which I assume this is what you do. I haven't been. But you just, you know, you slide everything. I've seen some movies. You slide everything into the one spot and say, I'm putting it there. Let's take a chance. Right? What if we did that with the Lord? What if we said, yep, this is, this is what I got. If this isn't true, I'm going to be a pretty pitiful person. If I die and, and, and they look at my life and they say, well, he literally bet it all on Jesus. And it turns out that Jesus wasn't true. So poor him. That's a way to live. To live pitiably, if not for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In, as we walk into what the Lord has for us as a church, I really feel from the Lord that this is what the Lord is calling us to. To be the kind of people that people look at us and they say, well, I really hope that Christianity thing works out for him. Because he has got nothing else, man. <laughs> he has not saved anything. He doesn't have any separate ideas. He doesn't, doesn't want to talk about anything else. This is his personality, and it's a little awkward and uncomfortable. Like, this is his deal, man. I really hope it works out for you. I love hearing that from people. I love being identified sometimes as that by people. Not always in a kind way. But it's, it's a good thing because it reminds me, well, good. At least I look like Jesus. Like, I, I, there's worse things, right? I, I, I could fail in a lot of other ways. We need to start living like people who are not going to stay dead. A lot of times we go out into the world and we are copying the way of living of people who know they are going to live once. And we, are, we pattern ourselves after them. Well, they're doing this, so I've got to kind of make that move. We, they're doing this. Listen, but you're not going to stay dead, though. So that should change the way you do things the first time around. Right? This is not going to last very long. You know, I might be already a third through or, or less. Who knows? So I don't have a lot of time, but I do have a lot of time over here. <laughs> Jesus has said, we were talking about this the other day on our porch. We were saying, you know, there's some things that we do here that we're probably going to do in heaven also. That's kind of cool. Maybe I should do more of those things. Or maybe I should be thinking more about living in such a way that I'm preparing myself for what my actual life will be with Christ. Right? When you live like that, I guarantee you evangelism is not going to be difficult for you because you're going to look very different from everybody else and somebody is going to be paying attention. Happens every time. You start living like that, like somebody who has absolutely nothing to lose, like you don't think you're going to die, people are going to ask you some questions. What are you doing? <laughs> why are you do, why, do you not see this? Why are you not unhappy like us? Why are you not doing this that we're doing? And you say, oh, it's really simple. I just don't think I'm going to die. You'll start some fun conversations with the Lord. And when that happens, then you'll get in a weird conversation where they will ask you a question that you don't know the answer to, or they're going to come against you with some crazy thing that you don't know what to do with, or they're going to, they're going to put a difficult situation in and say, well, what do you want to do with this? And you're going to be at that fun point where you're going to say, okay, Holy Spirit, you need to show up because I don't know. I started this and I don't know how to finish it. <laughs> I opened up this whole conversation. I don't know where this is going. And you're going to see the Holy Spirit actually show up in a way that you can go tell a story to someone and say, there's no way that happened if not for the Lord. That's when the Holy Spirit wants to show up. When you're in a place where the, whole, the Lord looks down and he says, well, they're in trouble now. <laughs> they're not going to be able to, they, you know, before we were okay because they could have that normal, rational, natural conversation, but now they need to have a supernatural conversation with somebody. And that is when the Holy Spirit likes to show up.